Hebrews chapter 2 tonight. We're going to look at the first 10 verses. Hebrews 2. If you're using a pew Bible in front of you, it would be page 1001. Let me read the text for you. Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, better probably, for this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. This is a quote from Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should be the founder of their salvation, uh, perfect through suffering. What does, and the first part is easy, what is the uh, theological meaning of the incarnation? Someone real quickly tell me, what does it mean? What is the incarnation all about? Don't talk about it a lot, but we should. What is the incarnation? Yes, Robert, Roberto. Okay, God becoming flesh and Jesus and dwelling among us. Excellent. So what are the practical applications? So we know Jesus, God became a man. And so what? What does it mean? Let me ask you this. How would the incarnation affect your life every day? How does it? How could it? Yes, Mike, and then Greg. Provide the perfect example. I mean, he lived a, a human life totally dedicated to God. Okay, he lived a perfect life totally dedicated to God. Excellent. I'm going to call that being truly human, and I'm going to show you what that means, but that's an excellent application with super abundant ramifications. Greg. But uh, God proved that that, uh, he loved us and he he relates to us. Good. Excellent. Because that's at the very end of this chapter, actually. You cheated. (laughs) At the end of the chapter, he was tempted and he's able to help those who are being tempted, tested, tempted, whatever that means. Yes. Tim. He took on physical life 
so that he could be sacrificed and lay down his life. Of course, how much more important is that, right? I mean, you can't get more ultimate than that. And so Jesus, and that's our text too, right? He could taste death for everyone. He, he, he had to become a man so that we could be forgiven, right? Because otherwise he couldn't have been sacrificed on the cross. So again, myriad, honestly, myriads of implications of the incarnation. And it would do us well uh, to know a little bit better. Hopefully we will tonight. Um, why did it matter in the first century? Um, none of the doctrines of the Bible happen in a vacuum. And you know what I mean by that is the doctrines are not ethereal. They're not just out there with, you know, just subjective value based on just propositional truth. No, they happen in a real life situation. People are living lives. And in Hebrews, they are Jewish people that have become Christians. And the real temptation is to go back to Judaism because being a Christian causes a lot of problems, has a lot of pressures. And if you read Hebrews from beginning to end, you'll find out that the, especially in chapter 10, the persecution was mounting. They were starting to, to not so much lose their, lose their lives yet, but they were having their houses taken from them, their lands that were taken away. They had possessions taken away from them. And they needed to be willing to endure all those things and hold fast to their faith. And so you get this, Hebrews has a number of, five if I think if I'm exact, a number of serious warnings that God puts in this book to keep them from going down the wrong path. The first warning is mentioned to us in this text. We must pay close attention, verse 1, to what we've heard, namely the Bible. So you can go back to chapter 1 and he tells you what you've heard means, chapter 1, verse 1, that God is given us the prophets. He's given us the Testament in the old time, but now the ultimate revelation is Jesus. And that's why I believe Paul, who wrote this, I think, um, is the one who's telling us about what we've actually heard. We've heard the Old Testament. We've heard him. And now it's been confirmed through the preaching of the apostles and the signs and wonders that went along with it. And he says, you, you need to keep hold of all of that together and not go back just to Judaism in the law and he's going to warn them that you need to hold on to that. If you're taking notes, I want to tell you how to work through this passage. And then we're going to take one piece of it in the middle. Um, if you look at the very first verse, it's really the first statement. The only one command or statement to do something in this text. And that is that we need to pay close attention. Closer attention, right? And that's the one. Now, after all of that, there aren't any imperatives in the rest of this entire chapter of verse 18 verses. But just so you know how things work when you study the Bible, now the rest of the chapter is going to take that first admonition to take careful heed or closer attention to these things, and it wants to show you what it means. So there's a little word that you could even get most of them all in English that would give you that clue. And it's the little word F O R. And most of the time, if it's meaningful, it begins verses. So I'm going to give them to you. All but one you can see in the English. Chapter 2, verse 2 is the first one to start. For, since the message is declared by angels. See how that works? The next one is verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. Now in verse 8, after the quotation of Psalm 8 is over, it's still verse 8. It says, now, now in putting everything, it's really the same word for. Not sure why they don't keep it the same, but they didn't. So for is verse 8 again. Verse number 10, it's the one that we read. For it was fitting 
And if you want to see the rest, not in the ones that are, verse 11 has another one. Verse four, 11 starts with four. Verse 16 starts with four. And the whole chapter ends in verse 18 with four. And if you want to look at it all, if you were laying it out in Paul's mind as he's writing, he's going to tell you, you need to pay really careful attention to what the Bible says. And then I'm going to give you seven reasons why that you need to. And he's going to build on it. We obviously don't have time to cover all of them. But we're going to do a couple of them tonight. And I want to pose a question to you that I think is incredibly relevant. And I want to be, (laughs) I'm not a prophet, but obviously, um, but a little prophetic in that you know, tongue-in-cheeks kind of way. I want to tell you that I believe that we are headed toward trouble in America. And I don't think that's hard to figure out. Um, but I'm beginning to think it's going to be faster than you think. Um, President Biden was signing the act today of, you know, tearing marriage apart more in our country. Um, and I, I don't think it's going to be very long before the verbal police, I don't think you're going to be able to say certain things or make certain statements um, about what is right and wrong, especially about uh, transgender, homosexual, and a number of other things. And I think it's going to cost you uh, to be a Christian. Right now, we're pretty free and clear by and large, but I believe, and I used to never think it would happen in my lifetime, but I'm not so sure anymore. Um, I think it's going to cost us to be able to be Christians and say what needs to be said. And, and I think that, you know, the old thing about persecution in other countries and persecution in the Bible is going to come home. And I think that it behooves us, to be flat out honest with you, better now than later, to get ourselves prepared and ready to have a mindset that these people needed to have. Because I'll tell you what, one of the things that are happen, will happen when persecution comes is that we'll find out who are real Christians and who are not. And that's what Hebrews says. If you don't hold on and pay close attention to the things that you've heard and the pressure and the persecution rises, it's going to be easy to go backwards to what is safe and secure, namely Judaism, without adding Jesus, quote-unquote. And it's going to be difficult. And I'm going to tell you this. It's going to be hard for us in the days to come to hold on to the values and the beliefs and the convictions that we have. And so the warning is becoming more real and actually more relevant. If we don't hold on to these things and pay close attention to them and heed them and obey them, he says, if we neglect such great salvation, and the word great is not the normal word mega, meaning great, meaning grandiose, but this means large. In other places in the New Testament, it's translated something really, really big, meaning important. If you don't, if you start neglecting, in other words, don't pay attention to the salvation and the large, the big story of all of it together. If you start dropping that, he says, how are you going to escape? And the previous verse was the retribution. See, how are you going to escape judgment? How are you going to hold on to your faith if you don't hold on to the story? So let me tell you this. We need to prepare now to prepare us and our children to hold on to our faith. In fact, that's mentioned throughout the New Testament numerous times, that we fight the good fight of faith that we may lay hold on eternal life. It's, it's hard for We have to keep hold of God as he keeps hold of us. And so as we do that, how do you go about doing it? Well, he's going to give you. I'm going to start in the middle, and then we're going to go to either side as our application. Let me show you what the text says. Verse 8 says, after he quotes Psalm 8, 
Now in putting everything in subjection to him, meaning mankind, because that's who he's talking about in Psalm 8, he left nothing outside his control. Humanity in Psalm 8, which those three verses are quoted, is the story about the beginning of all things. And God created man, and man was supposed to be the co-ruler with God. Co meaning co-regent. God was the ultimate ruler. We would rule under him. We were meant to be kings and princes, such the Chronicles of Narnia and the little kids and the names. They were princess, and they called them that. And Why? Because that's what humanity was to be. We were to rule things. Adam was the one who was told, you name the animals, because when you name something, you have authority over it in the Bible. That's why God will name you, but you can't ask God's name because you don't have authority over him. But Adam had all those dominion. His idea was to rule everything. He was to be right, the ruler under God. And God says in this passage, he didn't have angels rule that. And he doesn't have angels to rule the come, rule the world to come. We were supposed to do it. But you know the story and how it began. In verse chapter 3, we know that we blew it, we sinned, we followed Satan, we became autonomous, we wanted to rule ourselves without God's authority, and we've been doing it ever since. And so, although we were meant to have all those things be true for us, they weren't. And so he says at the end of verse 8, Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. We were just supposed to be dominion over all of it. But at present, watch, at present, we do not see everything in subjection to men. We don't. It, it's not coming true right now, or it's not fulfilled yet. Men do not have control. We do not rule. So let me ask you a question. So tell me, and, and this is probably endless, so I'm probably going to have to cut it off. What are some things today that show you that we are not in control? We do not control things in this world like God intended to. So give me an example and we'll try to keep it under a thousand. <laughs> right? What are some things? Tell me about it. There's a ton of them. Yeah, right. We don't control those in government, that's for sure. What else? Thank you. That was my first one I thought too. Weather, right? Go look around. What? Snow. Have you ever seen so much snow this early in the year? Five feet here, six feet, other places. We don't control any of that. Disasters, fires, earthquakes, floods. I mean, it's endless. We don't control any of it. What else? What else? Yes, James? COVID. COVID. That was pretty obvious, right? We don't, I have it down here too. Sickness and disease. We don't control any of that. What else? Yes, we don't control anything in creation. Really, we don't. What else? What else? Time. How about ourselves? You in 100% control of yourself all the time? Nope. We're not. We can't control ourselves, much less. Now, when you read Psalm 8, we don't have time tonight. You read it. You were created. You and I were created as man and woman together to have dominion, to control, to rule things. But you look around at our world, right? I mean, watch news, the news and be depressed. Watch. And that's what happens. See, that's what happens. He says, look at the verse. We do not yet see everything in subjection to man. We don't. 
That's what he says, at the present. So here he's doing this. Now in the present, in the first century, in Hebrews was written, what did they, they didn't see government under control. Nero was under control. And they didn't see Christians being treated well. They saw them treated poorly and growing worse all the time. So just like in the 21st century, it was true in the first century. You look around at everything going on, you would say almost everything under man is out of control, including people individually. And things were about as rough as it could get for them. You look around in the 21st century, and if you spend your time and all you do is look around, what do you see? Enough to make you upset, disappointed, afraid, depressed, discouraged, anxious, on and on the words go, No. But here's how you hold on to your faith in a world where everything that you can see looks like it's antithetical to everything the word says. And do we not live in that day? How do you do it? Look at the contrast because it's the key part of this section. We don't see everything in subjection to him, but what? We see him into the phrase, namely Jesus. So what's the answer to our question? The answer to our question is that we don't see everything in our world like it should be, Psalm 8, right now. So in the meantime, as we live now and between now and then, the already and not yet, how do you live? Well, you don't stay just looking around you at the things you can see that aren't right. You see Jesus. You see that? Don't you see this? But how do you live when you see this? How do you live? I live like this when I see this by seeing him. That's the contrast. I see Jesus. And here's what I get from him, i.e. Mike. You know what I get from him? That he was made like Adam and Eve, a little lower than the angels. He became lower than the angels. He became a person. Why? He wanted to show you how to live your life in the best of times and the worst of times. So no matter what you're going, you look around and God's promises are fulfilled and they seem so far away from it. How do you live? Well, you live just like he did. So I have a quote. Put that one up back there for you, Steve, from the very beginning that I had. No, the one from the beginning. There you go. Just as Jesus is the incarnation of God in this world... So now the church is the incarnation of Jesus in this world. As people look around in our world, it doesn't look like God is in control on the throne, that his promises are true, or anything that he has said is coming to pass. But it is. So can I tell you this? You know how you hold on your faith in a different world? I wrote these two things down. To see the present rightly, you have to see the future rightly. And let me build on it. To see the visible rightly, you have to be able to see the invisible rightly. So when he says, see around, look around, but you have to see Jesus. How do you see him? How do you see him? You can't see him with your physical eyes. You have to be able to see him with spiritual eyes. Now, hold your finger right here real quick. This is a big theme in this book. And I want to show you, say, well, Pastor Walker, how do I do that? How do I see the visible by seeing the invisible? Let me show you. Ha- chapter 11. You love this chapter, right? I do. Turn there real quick. Hebrews 11. And I'm going to point out the verses to you real quick. Follow me fast. Now, faith is the substance or the assurance of things hoped for. Watch. The conviction of things, what? Mm-hmm, not seen. Verse number 3. By faith, 
Underline that. By faith we understand the universe was created by the word of God so that, watch, what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Verse 5. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he could not see death. He was not found because God had taken him. Verse number 7. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. There had never been rain. There was never been a flood. And God said, build an ark for what? Well, he didn't ever see it for 120 years, but he obeyed. To the saving of his household. And by that, he condemned the world, it says. Verse number 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Watch. But having seen them and greeted them from afar. Verse number 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. They saw him with different eyes, with God's eyes and purposes. Chapter 26. He considered the reproach of Christ. Now, this is the one I want you to look at most. How do you handle persecution and problems? How do you see it? He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth. Message in itself. Let me give it to you real quick. He doesn't say that there isn't pleasure in Egypt, that there isn't treasures in Egypt. There is. To tell your children that there are no pleasures in this world, so don't go after them, would not be honest. All the things that sin allures all have pleasures, but the point is that they are temporary and short-lived. It's not that they aren't there. The pleasures are there, and they are real. They just don't compare to the pleasures that God can give you. Do you notice the comparative word? What is it? Look at the text. The reproach of Christ is greater wealth. Now let me tell you what it'll look like so that you can measure your ability to see the invisible. Right? It's not that you can say, oh, I know it looks bad, but now I look at Jesus and it looks good. That's not it. That's not what I'm talking about. It's still bad. You can look at Jesus, but look over here, it's still going to be bad. Okay, so how do you handle and respond to it right? Here's how I do it. Look at how radical this is. He doesn't say that the treasures of Egypt and God's treasures were better. No, he says the reproach of Christ, listen to this, the reproach of Christ, being made a slave, beaten, all that went with it, that is greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. And Moses knew all about them because he experienced them for 40 years. He's in the palace. He has everything you want. He has position. He's over people. He has money, everything. He says, you know what's greater than that? A scale. Egypt, treasures, wealth, position, status. Persecution, problems, pain, pressure, loss of freedom. You know what he says? Hmm, this one. That's when you know you can see the invisible. Because if you don't have that value system, you won't make those choices. And neither will our children. Let me put it in modern terms. Good job, good paying job, suburban neighborhood, nice house, car, job, bank account, retirement. But if I thought that I had to give up, what about this? Living for Jesus 
suffering persecution, saying the truth when no one else wants to hear it, living by the truth when no one else wants to see it, and it costs me everything, and I lose my job, don't have my house, not sure how things are going to turn out. Which one of those am I going to choose? You know what I'm going to say? Everyone mostly, this one. No, it's this one. But the only way that you could ever come to make those choices and make those radical choices that looks like such an awful, unwise thing to do is if you have a different value system. And you can't have that value system if you don't have different eyes to see. Moses did. It says, he considered the reproach, he considered means to think through it with a lot of meditation, so to speak. Greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Watch, because he, what? He could see. He looked to the reward. See how he did it? Here's my principle. You can only see your present choices clearly if you can see the future clearly. If you can't look past this world, this city, this life, this comfort, this peace, you cannot make the decisions now that make much of God. You cannot. And so he says, listen, you know what we see? Look at the world. We don't see the dominion. We don't have it. The world is a mess. That's the name of my sermon. But Christmas means, listen, that Jesus came into this world. And can I close with that if you'll turn back to chapter 2? But we see him, verse 9. Jesus, the true human the one who lived the way God said that human... See, he has the dominion. He had the rule. He has the power. He had the perfect life. He obeyed. See, Adam and Eve were tested in a perfect environment by the devil, and they failed. Jesus was in a horrible environment in the desert, and he succeeded. Everywhere that Adam and Eve failed, Jesus succeeded because he's the true Adam. He's the true human. And when we look at him, i.e., Mike and Greg says, rightfully so, we find out how to be truly human. And our world doesn't know that anymore. And so you know what we are to be? Our quote, we are to be the incarnation of Jesus in this world. That's what we do as a church. So we go to Kensington and we hand out things and we love people who are on the street and who are addicted. So we have a ministry at Mosaic. Why? Because that's what it is to be truly human, is to care about people. And so we witness to people, right? So we take Christmas to think of it clearly and differently. And we make different decisions. Why? Because we're trying to be truly human, to show that dominion. But how do you do the dominion thing? And I'm done. Not by powering over, but completely the opposite. It says that same Jesus who put himself low as the angels, he was crowned with, it says in verse 9, with glory and honor. But he was, you know, listen to what happened. He had to be humbled before he was exalted. In this life, folks, for us, we don't get the exalted part. That's next. This is the humble part. This is the getting low part. And why? Because he had to suffer death for everyone. He, had, he could taste it. it was, he had to experience it. So he had to get low. Let me close with an illustration. Back in 1964, I remember because of the year I was born, Kitty Genovese, true story, had worked the night shift in New York City and was coming home to the, I can't remember which borough she lived in. But as she was coming home, an assailant attacked her to mug her, really. 
And she was in her right, literally outside her apartment building. So she's outside her apartment building. And so he attacks her and she starts screaming. I mean, screaming over and over again because he had stabbed her already once or twice. He'd end up stabbing her five times and killing her in the end. But the horror of the story is is that after her death and the police came for interviews, they interviewed tons of people in the apartment building and they found out that 38 people saw and heard everything that was going on. 38! Not one person came down. They looked down, but they never came down. And do you know this? Not one picked up a phone to dial 911 and call the police. Not one person of the 38 who watched and heard her scream and die. And the first time she screamed, it scared him. And he thought, oh, she's screaming. Therefore, I can't do the rest of this because there are people in the building and they're going to come down. So he went away, ran away for five minutes and then he realized, huh, there is nobody coming. No sirens. No one even called. Even the guy who assailed her realized no one's coming. Five minutes later, he came back, finished her off, and took her money, all $49 of it. She died that night. You know why? No one wanted to get involved because it would make you vulnerable to go out there. You'd be risking your life. Let me tell you about Jesus. He knew exactly what was going on in our lives. He knew that the assailant had attacked us in our sin, and we were dying, if not dead already spiritually, right? Can I tell you this? He didn't just look down. He came down. He came down. But to do it, to be the incarnate son of God, he had to be vulnerable. Oh, not at the risk of his life. At the cost of his life. The cost of it. See, Jesus came down, and instead of you dying, he did. He had to come down and suffer and taste death for everyone. That's what he did. Now, if that's going to be you and I, and that's a picture of what it means to be truly human, how close are you? You know what the people in our world need to see? That we know how to suffer. That we know how to sacrifice. That we know how to take risks for the sake of the gospel and the, and the other people's lives. We know how to be vulnerable. We know how to be willing to be vulnerable enough to risk it. And sometimes, even if necessary, risk it all. That's what it means. Not all of it, but some of it, to be truly human. That's what it is. See, do we really see Jesus? Do we see him? Just this eyes or these Because if it would, we'll be different. This Christmas will be different. We'll see people differently. And then it'll make a difference in their lives. Let's pray. Father, help us. Our world is in a mess. And we spend a lot of time, probably more than we should, to be honest, looking around at the world. And we get angry and we get condemning, frustrated, depressed, and a whole host of other descriptions. But we need to, in this day, see Jesus. We really need to focus 
In fact, Hebrews in 12 is the word, it's, it's the verse we love. Verse 2, looking unto Jesus. The author, the champion it means, the hero of our faith. The hero who steps out as the representative like David and Goliath and risks his life to save everybody else. That's that word. That's what it means. That's what Jesus was. And we need to look to him because that's what we need to be. We need to be the champions in our church. We need to be the champions in our society where people look to us because we're different. Not odd different, God different. Help us, Lord, to put the Christ back in Christmas with our lives. That people might see you and desire you because they see how to be truly human. And therefore, they might come to know him who is Lord and Savior, King, the one who truly rules this world. And we'll give you thanks and praise and honor and glory for that. For it's in your matchless name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.